You're listening to OEA Grow, a member-led production of the Oregon Education Association and a proud member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. OEA Grow is by members, for members. In Season 11, educators discuss a culture of care with Dr. Amy Yillick. Welcome back to OEA Grow. I'm Dr. Amy Yillick, your host for season 11. Today we begin our culture of care season where Oregon educators are using trauma responsive, restorative and equitable practices in their work. I'm excited to be talking with my partners, Aaron Taylor and Amber McGill, who are also culture of care coaches in central Oregon. Welcome. Um, I'd love it if you could tell the listeners a little bit about yourselves. How did you end up in education? What's your experience been like? Even, you know, what made you apply for this work? Erin, you want to start us off? Sure. So I knew in third grade that I was going to be a teacher. I was the kid who was taking those extra mimeographs home with me at the end of the day and playing school with anybody who would play school with me or with my dolls. Um, okay, wait. You might have to. You might have to define what a mimeograph is for half of the population listening to this. <laughs> that's true. Mimeographs were the thing that came before a copy machine, and my mother was actually an assistant in the school, so she would run that big clunky machine. It was pretty cool. Um, but then I knew when my stepsister Allison came into my life that I was going to be a special education teacher. Allison was my stepsister who experienced Down syndrome. Um, I ended up, my first teaching job was in rural East Texas and um, loved teaching. And I learned that when the principal comes up to you, that's when you run the other way saying, have I got the job for you? And that's how I became the behavior classroom teacher in my, in my school. Um, I found during that work, I really did have a passion working with students who, as the great Tim Feeney calls them, are chronically cranky and was getting some success in, in the program that we built. But there was this lady who was coming in and out of my room. She would come and perch in on a chair, you know, and stay for a minute and a half and then leave before we could ask her, you know, what are you even here for? And come to find out she was my friendly school psychologist there to help me. Well, she wasn't very helpful. So it was in that moment that I decided it was time for me to go back to school to be a better school psychologist than what she was for me. And I really found that I, I enjoyed that, that work as a school psychologist, but was finding that rural East Texas was probably not the place I wanted to retire. So we relocated here to Central Oregon and I served as a behavior specialist for five years in a local school district. I absolutely loved that work until that work intimately acquainted me with burnout. And it was in those that moment of burnout, I was looking for an answer. I um, had finished my administration license and wasn't sure what that what the next step was going to be for me. But uh, when this role opened up, I thought this seems like a really great opportunity to take all of what I know um, that is helpful with students and be proactive about that and give them gives tools and strategies in the hands of teachers 
early in the process as opposed to waiting until things are um, too far gone and trying to fix it at that point. Awesome. Thank you. Amber, how about you? Well, I started off uh, coming from the social work realm. I had a very strong sense of justice uh, growing up and wanted to be a part of bringing healing in my community. So um, I got my bachelor's in social work, um, worked in Chicago where I grew up um, for a few years at a community center. Um, And that is where I really fell in love with teenagers, just knowing that that was such a good fit for me of working with the adolescent level. Um, And then moving into grad school, uh, getting my master's in social work uh, from Portland State. My first year internship was at a high school. And that's, I took my love for teenagers and added in, I really love the school setting. There's something about um, education and being um, where most young people come through, that we really have um, access to the majority of the population there and can meet them where they're at. So um, ended up spending about 14 years working in Portland Public Schools uh, at the high school level, um, primarily as a community school director, um, kind of a makeshift social work type role before they were funding that position. Um, and then as I uh, was encouraged by my principal, uh, multiple principals actually, to uh, go through the administrator program and think about leadership, um, I started applying for positions or looking at positions that would bring together both my social work uh, lens, education, and leadership. I couldn't see myself in that traditional building administrator role, but I knew I wanted to do something in, um, in shifting culture. And I think, you know, the, I didn't call it culture of care at the time, but the work I was doing at the high school I worked at, um, I was really challenged by my mentor to say, how can I have a greater impact uh, working across multiple schools or districts um, to do that work um, and to bring that um, equity and social justice uh, lens. So when I, um, saw the culture of care position. I was really excited and felt like this was a job description made just for me um, based on yeah my experience, my heart, and um, was excited to also move into Central Oregon for some more sunshine after being in Portland for so long. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I too love working with teenagers. That was my primary, primary kind of location through as a school counselor and then as a school psychologist. And um, I found myself at the end of my career as a school psychologist after being in a school for about 17 years. I heard this little voice in my head that said, you can't, you can't keep doing this. (laughs) You know, I had gone from having one or two risk assessments, maybe a year when I started off in the school to having you know, multiple risk assessments during the week. And I just felt like it was time to see if I could change the system (laughs) and not just have this kind of fire hose issue coming at me. And, but I didn't know what that was. And so I went to my principal and I went to my direct supervisor at the time. And I said, okay, I need a change. I don't think I can keep doing this. And what do you think? And uh, my direct supervisor said, well, 
there's this position that's going to be coming up. And I don't know if he named it culture of care or not at that time. And he said, it's going to be all about helping schools in our central Oregon region, create trauma restorative cultures. And he thought, you know, my, I had quite a bit of knowledge on trauma at that point, And he thought that I would be a good fit. And Turns out it's been one of the best decisions that I've made is to apply for this job. So, um, yeah, I'm really happy. We have a great team. I'm so lucky. I get to work with you two. It's <laughs> really awesome. Right? It's so cool. So we're talking about culture of care. So what the heck is culture of care? Amber, you want to answer that one? Sure. We... Uh operate on our logic model of if the adults in our system have uh, mindsets, skills, confidence, knowledge, uh, and support to create welcoming, safe, supportive uh, environments, then our students will have a different experience that they will feel cared for. They have a sense of belonging and a sense of uh, connection and safety in order to be able to learn. And so um, our primary objective is to support the grown-ups in the system uh, to make sure that they have what they need um, to incorporate this trauma-informed, trauma-responsive lens to understand the impact of trauma on the brain, on learning, um, and how we can create environments that are more, um, again, safe and supportive, um, that that encourage uh, learning and help uh, our students, wherever they're at, um, be seen, known, and valued. Um, so that means we spend a lot of our time providing professional development, um, lots of workshops and trainings, uh, coaching, just encouragement, brainstorming and troubleshooting, um, how we can do things differently uh, to create these environments that are um, different than what a lot of us have experienced in education in the past. And also our work is around advocating for, this is not just for the students to have a different experience, we need the adults, we need our staff to also experience that when they go to a staff meeting, when they're interacting with their colleagues, when they're given mandates and expectations, how do we bring that uh, trauma-responsive restorative and equity lens at every level um, in this work? So we're developing resources, developing content, um, taking calls to um, kind of brainstorm a challenge. Um, and we're just, I feel like, thought partners and, and a resource that are um, our entire region can access. So we serve all of Central Oregon um, in a variety of ways based on our kind of expertise and experience. Yeah, thank you. Erin, would you add anything to what Amber said on that, you know, oh, what is culture of care? I, I think she summarized it pretty well. And I think what culture of care, mm -hmm. the gift that it gives us is the ability for each of us to sink into what we do best. I'm going to ask you that question in just a second about what we do and how we do it. But first I want to ask, um, like, how did this work even start? How did that, how did it get going? It started with the, the six school districts in our region teaming up together to apply for a grant from the Central Oregon Health Council because, and the Central Oregon Health Council knew the impact of trauma over the lifespan of our children and wanted to intervene earlier into and try to change trajectories for our kids. So our six surrounding school districts built this culture of care and, and uh, 
birthed some very lofty goals that we inherited and we had to take and that kind of helped us craft what this culture of care thing is. That a grant from the Central Oregon Health Council funded us for three years. And we're, we are, uh, I was going to say we're going into our fifth year, but we are in our fifth year. We are solidly planted right. and very uh, full. Our, our calendars are very full going into our fifth year of this work now. Um, and I would say one of the gifts of the school districts coming together, all of those school districts coming together to apply for the grant is that we had districts that were ready, willing, and able to do this work. And so we weren't, it wasn't an uphill battle to start this. Yeah, Amber. I, I, I want to add that we I need to mention that the High Desert ESD is actually who spearheaded this and championed it and brought those school districts together. And that is, that is who we work for. So we are employed by the High Desert ESD um, to do this work. So they were an amazing convener of those partners to find common ground, to find um, a need that all of them, uh, were invested in supporting and wanted to get those resources. So I just feel grateful for that. And think about, you know, in different areas of the state where there are ESDs that can really build that collective um, influence and um, get some, yeah, common ground around uh, change that needs to happen in our areas. Right. That's so great. Such a great point. Um, what would you say some of our successes have been so far in creating this work? I, I'm feeling lately that um, I'm measuring success by the level of demand for our work. I remember starting off, and for me, I was brand new to this region, so nobody knew me from anybody, and I had to kind of start from scratch of building credibility, respect, like um, relationship. Um, and, you know, it wasn't some sort of mandated thing that people had to do. It was really starting on like, who's already uh, has this kind of kindred spirit in like doing this kind of work and want to create these trauma informed environments and, and create these supportive cultures. And so um, I feel like the last, the first few years was us really establishing who we were um, and building it, trying to be responsive, um, trying to stay relevant and connected to the needs. And now I feel like, um, where the demand is so high, uh, which can feel overwhelming and stressful on our end. But to me, I have to remind myself that that, that means people are hungry for this. This is meeting a need. This is addressing um, real everyday concerns uh, and stress that people are carrying and that we can be a part of um, serving them and supporting that, um, giving them new ideas, new tools, um, and f helping them to feel like we're, they're not alone in that. Um, so I feel like we've had lots of specific successes of certain events or things that we've done where, um, you know, the turnout is really high or the feedback is really positive. Um, people continuing to reach out or recommending us to other people. Um, that for me is the success uh, in, in how I want to measure that, um, to know that we're doing good work that's needed. Yeah. For sure. And you mentioned something and it kind of um, spurred a question for our listeners. What is that need? You said the needs are kind of high right now. I'm wondering, what would you say those needs are? Erin, you want to speak to that? Yeah. Um, there's just a lot of dysregulation in our schools right now with our students um, and our staff as well of, you know, the when we come into school, not all kids are ready to learn in the same way. And our students are telling us, 
with their behavior, if not with their words, that some of the structures and the systems we have in place in schools are not working for them. And that dysregulation is at an all-time high in some students. And we have um, just a small percentage, but a, a group of students who are really demanding something different and, and a different approach and, and different systems in place to support them. I would say also the there's a higher, um, just, yeah, this demand of the behavior. Um, and I would say that like, that's at an all time high where while staffing is at an all time low. So like being short staffed, so much turnover, not enough subs uh, to coverage for people when they need a day off or they want to go to a training, like those kinds of things. I feel like that perfect storm of like serious needs in our students with just um, staff doing all they can to just stay in there, but there's no breathing room. There's not a lot of support, um, you know, large classroom sizes, all of that is um, leading to this, I think, extra um, intensity for the need. Right. We talk about in our work a lot, we do a lot of work on burnout. And I know we have taken the work of Freudenberger and North, and they they talk about the first step in burnout, and, and we've kind of changed that a little bit. We've altered it for education, and we and we say at Culture of Care that the that first step of burnout is when demand exceeds capacity. And so, what I'm hearing you say <laughs> is that schools the demand is exceeding capacity, um, whether it's from you know these really what uh, I would refer to as these students with these high growth potential, right? <laughs> it's like they've, they're struggling the most and they, they, because of that, they have the ability maybe to grow more and it's such a demand on the staff. What would you say are some of the barriers to do? So we know what the needs are. We know what some of our successes have been, but how about barriers to doing our work? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I think... Capacity of having three people for an entire region. Um, there's a barrier in that way. I think people are wanting us to be more like in the school with them doing this work. Um, and we do when we can, um, but it's not, um, we're not able to do that consistently um, across the board. Um, so we're really trying to build capacity versus providing direct service. And I think sometimes people are like, I just need you to come do this or come help me. Um, so I think that that's a barrier sometimes that tension of staying in our lane of again, building capacity with the adults, um, training, modeling, supporting, coaching versus uh, being requested to come in and do the direct work. Um, and yeah, I think I mentioned it before, but like, sub coverage or some feel, staff feeling like they can take even a few hours, a half a day to go to a training, to learn more, to grow professionally themselves. Every, I feel like the being in survival mode is a real barrier to like right growth and learning and feeling like you can think about something differently or creatively and take on, there's just a lot of, not a lot of margins. Um, and then I would say the, um, <laughs> a core barrier is uh, systems work. So we can, you know, get as many staff as we can through our work and, and give them tools. But if the design of the schedule or, um, you know, other systemic things around policies of discipline and behavior and things like that, if those aren't shifting, um, that really keeps the work stunted. So I think we need, again, uh, at all levels, so the staff and student and kind of grassroots and like leadership and systems to operate um, differently 
at the same time. Right. And I'm thinking about the fact that, you know, we have, we have problems that we haven't faced before in education and problem solving requires creativity, (laughs) but creativity requires us to be regulated and calm, have that thinking time. And we ain't got time for that in education right now. (laughs) That's not where we're at. Yeah. And I think that's what, that is what um, makes our roles so important because, um, you know, I was worried taking this job that I would be that person who used to get it, who used to understand what it's like in schools um, and how do we stay connected to that. Uh, But the gift is that we are not in that um, flood every day. And so we can, we can bring um, some creative, more energized, more, and we have more time to do some of this research to come up with activities and tools to provide the educators in that who are just trying to stay afloat um, any moment. So I think that is, I think, unique in our role to see that it's not um, a barrier, but it's actually a gift to be able to um, have those resources and margins that other people that are in it every day don't, um, so we can come alongside. Yeah. Beautifully said. Erin, any, anything to add from your yeah, perspective um, on barriers? You know, I, I like to, I, I spend a lot of time working with teachers on strategies and things like that. And we know the more dysregulated we become as an adult, the more we fall into patterns of old habits, because that's just the, you know, we go to the path of least resistance under stressful conditions. And so, you know, I, a barrier to, to me continuing in, in some of my work is just be, you know, not that I don't have the time to walk alongside teachers as much as I would like to, to help them implement strategies in the moment. That's one of, that's one of those things I really love to do. And I don't get to do that as much as I'd like. Yeah. I'm thinking back to, you know, five years ago when the three of us first met in little office there at the High Desert Educational Service District. And, you know, we had this piece of paper that had all these goals that it wanted us to achieve, but there was no culture of care. We were it, right? And uh, we really created what it is that we do. Erin, could you maybe explain a little bit about how we, you know, divide up those, the buckets of our work and um, what those buckets are? Yeah. So I think we are very um, unique individuals and we all have our own passion in the work that is diverse. So um, that helps to make make things easier with dividing up the work. For instance, my passion for the work is, okay, what are the tools and strategies we give our teachers to actually do in the moment? What is it to be trauma-informed? What, what do we do? And so, you know, when it comes to that kind of work, it generally falls to me. Um, Amber is our champion for restorative practices. And so she champions that work and she spearheads that. And Amy is very much into that, the wellness culture. And what do we do to take care of ourselves while we're working in the system that is so primed for burnout? And that helps us divide up the work. But we're also finding that we all need to step up and learn other learn and lean into the work that our our coworkers are doing as well so we can support 
because there there are three of us and we're needing to step up and be ready to step into a restorative practices professional development to help out. So it's it's growing our our skills and tools as well as as uh, kind of keeping to our buckets. And right. The gift of the gift of having our passions is that we get to shine. We get to do what we do best. And that comes out in, in what the product we give our, our uh, professionals. Right. Absolutely. Amber, I just was thinking, have there been any surprises in our work? Anything that's, that you weren't expecting that we do that, um, that when we started this work, you know, you wouldn't have even thought we would be doing. Yes, for sure. So I think um, when we were partnering with Better Together and like exploring um, a source for restorative practices, curriculum, training, framework, um, I think we initially were expecting to um, support schools, kind of recommending a framework connecting people to the training um, and helping schools, you know, create their own systems and cultures for um, proactively building community and then repairing harm. So that's really what the restorative work is. So um, in my mind, we were going to facilitate some trainings, maybe just connect people to trainings um, and yeah, just kind of help them maybe like coaching or problem solving on how to implement this with students. Um, to create these uh, more healthy, uh, mutually supportive environments. Um, and it turns out we're such good trainers and presenters that then people <laughs> will come and spend time with us and say, not can you come in? I mean, they'll ask us to come and train their staff, right? Or come to their school. Um, but I, this main surprise has been being requested to facilitate restorative conferences. So this is um, like the formal circle process to repair harm, um, but among staff. So that we've spent time the last couple of years um, responding to requests where people are feeling like they need a neutral third party who is competent and confident to come in and hold safe space um, where there's been some kind of harm done and there needs to be a repair conversation. Um, So it's been super meaningful and um, yeah, just incredibly healing, I think, for everyone involved, including myself. And it, was, it wasn't something we set out planning to do, uh, but it just sort of came about organically um, through the process of being, again, being in relationship, being trusted by our schools and our leaders, um, and then also having this resource of knowing how um, to facilitate. Right. And I, I too, I think we all three have been surprised at that. I think it's kind of speaks more to the state of what's going on in the world right now. People are having a hard time getting along. And the other piece to that, I'm so surprised at how meaningful it is. Such a, I really love being able to participate in those healing conversations with you um, to serve the educators. So that's been really great. And we have one of our partners from restorative justice and equity is going to be on the season uh, later and talk about what are those components of restorative practices, restorative justice, what does a restorative conference look like, those kinds of things. So for uh, listeners who aren't sure about that, please tune in later in the, the season to learn a little bit more. 
Um, Aaron, any surprises to you? Anything you'd add to that? Um, I think the surprise to me has been how welcoming schools and teachers are to having support in the work. You know, it's it's really easy to to fall into silos, but I'm I'm truly not seeing that across our region. I'm seeing folks that are hungry to for support and help, and are hungry to say, what can I do differently that's going to meet the needs of the students I have. Yeah, it's such a great surprise, huh? Mm-hmm. It's a gift. Amber, yeah, for sure. Um, Amber, how would, you know, thinking about the sustainability of culture of care, how how are we going to do that? <laughs> what a great question, Amy. Um, I think definitely thinking about our uh, origin story of, you know, being grant funded, um, you know, up to five, it's, it'll most likely be through year six maybe even seven, um, that it's a combination of Student Success Act dollars and, um, you know, grants. And then um, the hope for sustainability is that we are so compelling and so helpful and valuable to our school districts that they are willing to invest into uh, their local service plan with the High Desert ESD so that all the, the districts will pitch in um, to say we want to continue culture of care just like they would with any other service they um, receive from the High Desert ESD. Um, and so it isn't something uh, where we have to sort of hustle and beg every year, but it is uh, something that's valued and that um, people show that value with their budget. Um, so that ideally is where we would like to go um, unless we can find an independently wealthy uh, funder that's willing to take care of us. Um, I, my hope is that um, our districts really see, see how we've served them, see the relevance and um, can see the impact and that it's worth investing in long-term. Right. I promise if I win the lottery, I will fund both of your positions until you are ready to retire. (laughs) Appreciate it. Maybe a couple of vacations along the way. Well, yes, of course. You can get a vacation in there. Yes, yes. Maybe even fund some other people, right? Fund some other people to, uh, to come and do this work too. That would be amazing. All right. Um, Aaron, in the, you know, your work of culture of care, if I gave you a magic wand, what would, what would happen? What would you do with it? Um, I would find another, some more folks to help us. That would be really great. Um, There's definitely people who have a passion for the work. It's just the funding. Um, But my other magic wand would be just to, to continue with the, you know, sub availability so that our folks can get time to, to engage with this learning and, and not just sit in a classroom with us, but really engage deeply of practicing and, you know, applying tools and strategies in, you know, in, in that moment. And so they're more prepared and they feel like they can then apply them in their classrooms. I would, I would love to get the gift of more time. Yeah. I would also have yeah, an I, infinite calendar availability. <laughs> <laughs> well, if we had more money and more people doing this work, it would definitely, I think it would change our calendar. Maybe not. Maybe we just grow even that much more. I know where all three of us are very uh, much go-getters in this work. And so 
we probably would just fill our calendar even more. Probably so. <laughs> um, I know for my right. I, I know for myself, if I had a magic wand, I really would be able to wave it and we would have, you know, cultures and schools that were embedded in wellness and um, where we really center taking care of kids and ourselves and each other. And the way that the system is set up right now, it's, it's not set up to have that, that culture. We're set up to, um, in demand exceeds capacity. And so that would require, you know, lower student teacher ratios. It would require more understanding of the, the neurobiology of trauma and how so many of our youth are experiencing that. Um, it would, it would change how we approach those, you know, those very few, um, high needs or students with high growth potential. So those would be, that would, be how I would, if I had my magic wand, we would shift the culture. How about you, Amber? If you had a magic wand, what would happen? I would want for each building to be fully staffed, plus more, um, to be able, as you said, to have, um, you know, smaller class sizes um, and to be able to take a sick day and not feel stressed about it. Um, that there's uh, just an abundance of staff and not just bodies, but like highly trained, highly passionate, highly skilled folks, um, our educators, as well as our malbehavioral health providers. I think I, we need more options for where our kids can be. Um, you know, there's not one out of one size fits all. So we need a variety of options in our region um, for educational settings, um, whether that's therapeutic, um, whether that's residential, whatever that looks like. We need options for all. So I would like full, amazing staff teams uh, that could lean on each other uh, and feel equipped um, to do this work of education. And then also those um, ex uh, the expertise in our um, support staff providers, whether that's in the building or outside. Um, again, there's just options and that our, our educators aren't expected to do it all, that there's actually the support folks that are walking alongside and, and helping to coordinate services for our students and for their families. And a lot of the barriers we're seeing in education is, you know, it can be poverty, racism, other equity issues um, that affect um, child's ability to, to be ready to learn. And so I would love to see all of those addressed if I had the wand. Yes. Yeah. I just, I'm like, I got chills. I'm like emotional, a little choked up at thinking what, you know, what our schools could be if the three of us were given magic wands. <laughs> now, don't give me a magic wand in any other area because that might be a disaster. But here, you know, I think that we would do amazing things and continue to do the amazing work that we're, we're doing for sure. Um, is there anything else you want to make sure that our, our listeners know about culture of care in this part one podcast? I think it's, it, if your heart's in the work, then you're, then you're doing the right thing. And our heart is very much in the work we do and it serves as our North star. Yeah. Thank you. Amber. I think just that I feel grateful for this opportunity to be able to work in such a creative unique way that is like very responsive and flexible and just seeing how much we need 
that sort of structure in order to do good work um, and that our rigid systems do not allow for that. So I think I just wish for more of that for everyone um, in this time. And also I think holding on to hope um, that things can change. um, That's been an important piece for me to, when I get inundated with all the things that are going wrong and all the harm that is happening and all the stress, um, I have to kind of recalibrate and uh, remember uh, that there is hope. We have, we are seeing change. Um, there are ways that we can have an impact no matter how small. Um, and that is, that makes a difference and that matters. Um, so to remember that as we're trudging through. Yeah. Beautiful. There's always hope. There's always hope. Well, thank you both for joining me, not only um, today in the podcast, but also in my day-to-day professional life. I'm just so honored to work beside both of you. Uh, Next week on OEA Grow, we'll continue talking with the both of you about culture of care work, and um, then we'll be focusing on the actual specific work that we do in Central Oregon. To our listeners, thank you for listening, and... Take care. For more OEA professional learning opportunities, visit grow.oregonad.org.